Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this LeanPub podcast, I'll be interviewing Noel Rappin. Noel is Director of Development at uh, TableXI. Is it TableXI or TitleXI? TableXI. Yeah, TableXI, a custom software development company in Chicago that does a variety of work on enterprise software, mobile applications, and custom websites. Noel has written a number of technical books, including Take My Money, Accepting Payments on the Web, Rails 4 Test Prescriptions, and a four-book series called Master Space and Time with JavaScript. Noel is also the author of a book in progress published on LeanPub called Trust Driven Development. His book is about the importance of trust in the profession of building successful software, and we'll be talking about that a little bit later. You can follow, follow Noel on Twitter at Noel Rapp and find out more about him and his writing online at noelrappin.com. In this interview, we're going to talk about Noel's career, his professional interests, his books, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about self-publishing. So thank you, Noel, for being on the LeanPub podcast. I'm uh, glad to be here. Um, I always like to start these interviews by pe- asking people for their origin story. Um, so I was wondering if you could tell me how you first got interested in um, software development and what your career path has been. Well, software development, I, I have like in many ways what it, what used to be like the standard path. Like I was a, <clears throat> I was a young a young nerd who started programming AppleSoft Basic on an Apple IIe. Actually, probably a little bit before that, there was a place near my house that gave after-school lessons on like TRS 80s and stuff like that. So this is um, the early 80s, the early 1980s, and I uh, didn't do a whole lot with it for a while, but I, you know, kept going and and, and learned uh, Turbo Pascal and, and things like that, and eventually decided um, that that was the kind of thing that I wanted to keep doing. That I really that I enjoyed it, um, and and I so have a like a regular CS degree and and a graduate degree, and then uh, which I don't really use very much, um, and then I um, uh, came out of school uh was living in boston for a while worked for a very very small consulting company at, at in the what would be the what, w- what would become the dot-com boom um and, and since then have largely uh worked as web developer uh and consultant although not exclusively but for most of the intervening time and do you remember your first experience with a computer <sighs> the first thing i ever coded so this is probably this is very early 80s and the, the one of the competitors to the Atari 2600 uh, was made by a company called Bally, uh, which they were mostly like a pinball machine company, but they made a really early game console and they had a, a programming cartridge that you could program basic, uh, the programming language basic in. And I have a very clear memory of, uh, so I was probably about 10 or 11 and I was trying to copy a program from their manual, and what I didn't realize was that the key, there was no way to tell from visually, but that all of the keywords in the program had special. Like it was, it was it wasn't a keyboard; it was like a one to nine, almost like a text message, like an old T nine text entry thing. So it was very very slow. They had shortcuts for all the different keywords in the language, and you had to actually use the shortcut if you typed the keyword. It didn't the, the interpreter or whatever didn't recognize it, and you couldn't tell from the screen that that was what was going on, uh, and and that and I didn't know that I'd done it wrong, and and it was very, very frustrating and probably great preparation for my uh, eventual career. Yeah, so you must have had to uh, just you know bang mm-hmm. away at it until you figured it yeah. out. Yeah, yeah, I don't even remember. I don't remember how I figured it out, but at some point, um, I, I think I, it dawned on me what was going on. 
but it took a, a very, very long time. For some uh, reason, that reminds me of the uh, infamous um, Rumpelstiltskin clue in uh, King's Quest. Do you remember that game? I, that I'm not familiar with. Um, there was a game called King's Quest where um, there was a the, the solution to a riddle was to type in Rumpelstiltskin backwards. But uh-huh. in the code, they'd misspelled Rumpelstiltskin. Oh, God. Yeah. <clears throat> um, so even if you got the answer, you still couldn't solve the problem. Um, and this became a notorious. <laughs> this, this, is a total, this is a total digression, but there's a legendary story about the early days of Second City when it was the early days of the Second City improv troupe. Um, when it was like Alan, uh, Alan Arkin and people like that, that they were doing uh, – some they were doing for some reason Rumpelstiltskin as a, a theatrical piece a, improv, and uh, you know they get to the point where the Rumpelstiltskin saying all you have to do is guess my name, and then somebody just ran on stage said hey Rumpelstiltskin old pal, great to see you, how's it going Rumpelstiltskin, uh, and then left, <laughs> leaving the other two actors to just sort of pick up the scene oh my. after the guy had just completely destroyed it. Speaking of um, Second City, yeah. I should mention that Noel is coming to us from Chicago. Um, if I didn't mention it in the intro, um, and second city is a very famous comp- improv troupe. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. That had nothing to do with anything. I just love that story. That's fine. Um, uh, actually on the, on the subject of, um, perhaps digressions, um, one thing <laughs> I know that you like to write about on your blog is tech. Um, and I saw you had a post about the new MacBook pro. And, yes. Um, a lot of people who listen to this podcast are developers, um, and people who probably work on MacBooks, And I think they might like to hear your feedback on so, what your experience has been like with the new MacBook Pro. I am apparently the only person in the known universe that likes the new MacBook Pro. Sorry, like I got a beep in there. Sorry. I'm I'm apparently the only person in the known universe that actually likes the new MacBook Pro. Um, but I do and and the person who sits next to me who actually has the 15 inch who likes it. Um I uh, am coming to this from a what was a four-year-old uh, 15-inch MacBook Pro that overheated all the time and had a battery life that we were starting to measure in minutes. Um, and, and so, uh, this one seems great to me. Uh, I, I, I actually, um, use the touch bar. Uh, again, I seem to be unusual in developers that I've talked to and finding this to be like helpful and kind of cool. Um, but I, I do. Um, so I, I, I do find that my normal developer practice tends to be a little bit closer to consumer practice than a lot of other developers. Like I don't use Vim. Uh, I don't use Emacs. I use Atom, which obviously is a programmer text editor, but which uh, uses like normal Mac key bindings. Uh, and I do a lot since I do a lot of like non-code writing using consumer or uh, power user writing apps. Um, I find that my usage tends to diverge a little bit from hardcore uh, developers who are mostly using Vim and like iTerm. So my experience is sometimes a little bit different than. And do you normally? Uh, when you're coding, are you using an external monitor? Um, I usually do use both a laptop monitor and an external monitor. Um, so you type uh, on the monitor in front of you, or you, sorry, pardon me, you type on the laptop in front of you? Yeah, no, my normal practice, and, and yeah, I normally type on the laptop and, and, and usually use a secondary monitor for the browser or the whatever else that I'm, I'm looking at. Okay, yeah, for those listening, um, this these are, you know, the tools of the trade. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, everybody's got their own, um, setup. Um, yeah. If you, yeah, sorry, you look down, you look down the, the, the 
calls here and you'll see people using their laptops in all different ways. Some people just use a laptop. Some people close the laptop and just use the external screen. Uh, and have you customized um, the touch bar that a, Apple added? A little bit. Um, I, I added um, – I added a button like the the default thing. I added like the lock command to the default thing because I lock my screen a lot whenever I get up. And now it's easier to do that. Um, I've customized it in a couple of apps. Uh, There's an application called Better Touch Tool, uh, which is normally a keyboard shortcut and and trackpad shortcut tool. Um, but it also now allows you to customize the touch bar for apps that don't have touch bar support. You can add buttons to it that trigger keyboard shortcuts or whatever on the app. And so that's really helpful for a couple things that I use that, that don't support it yet. Um, you had another great blog post that struck me about your mobile writing setup. And for those, mm-hmm. um, uh, it's not just programmers who sit in front of keyboards and screens typing, it's writers too. And, and yeah. programmers and writers can be the same people sometimes, like like in your case. And um, what struck me about it, I just, you know, as soon as I saw the image of um, an iPad uh, in a on a stand, you know, some distance from yeah. an external keyboard, um, it seemed so much superior in some ways to the very um, distraction-heavy experience of having your mouse there and the internet there to be easily interacted with. Yeah, I really like this setup. I haven't used it as much since I got the new laptop because the new laptop is smaller and and, and pretty portable. Um, But basically I have these these, uh, 12, this actually like $6 because it was two for a pack of 12 little plastic iPad stands uh, and a, a really inexpensive, the Logitech, like $40 keys to go keyboard, which, uh, um, again, some people don't like the feel of, but I actually think feels pretty good for something that's about the width of a binder cover. Um, it's tiny, uh, and really light. Uh, and yeah, and that's a very portable setup. And in some ways it's a little bit more ergonomic than the laptop setup. Cause you can mess with the, uh, uh, distance between the monitor and the and the keyboard uh, in ways that are hard to do when you're on a laptop and the two of them are connected to each other. Yeah, I really like uh, the and, idea of the um, of uh, potentially. I don't know if you mentioned this specifically, but of potentially putting the iPad more than arm's reach distance mm-hmm. away um, so that you can't poke at it and uh, interact with anything. You just then you right. just have to write. Yeah, and then you can also put the uh, the iPad in. Uh, uh, portrait rather than landscape. So it looks a little bit more like a sheet of paper, uh, if you're into that kind of thing. Um, and yeah, it's a very, first of all, it's very lightweight, um, a very lightweight, very, very portable setup. Uh, you can almost do it. Uh, I, I, if you have like a, like some sort of goofy, like I have a Scotty fest jacket and it'll all fit in the pocket of the jet, the whole thing will fit in the pocket of the jacket. Um, very, uh, Battery lasts a lot longer than a laptop battery would, um, so it's a very good sort of portable uh, setup. And it is kind of dis- it is distraction free. You generally only have the one window. I use um, a very minimalist. I tend to use either a application called Ulysses or, or an application called IA Writer, both of which present pretty minimal interfaces when you write. Um, and so, yeah, it doesn't work as well when I'm writing stuff that interacts with code a lot. So if I'm writing a, a very technical section where I'm, I'm going back and forth between code snippets and writing, um, it's not as effective, but for a blog post or for something where, uh, or something like the trust book, which doesn't have any code in it, 
um, kind of thing works works really uh, really well. I really I really uh, enjoy that setup. Um, my last tech question is actually about the Scott Evest. Um, I hadn't heard about it until <laughs> I saw your post. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that company. It's really uh, interesting. <laughs> uh, Scott Evest makes they make they make clothes with a lot of pockets, um, <laughs> including underwear. And, yeah, I don't have the underwear. Um, I, 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 I have a jacket. I have a couple of things of theirs. I have a, a jacket, um, that has an internal pocket large enough to slide an iPad into, although it is, uh, you don't really feel the weight of it, but you, it does make like bending kind of a challenge. Um, uh, but yeah, it just has a lot of, a lot of pockets for phone. Uh, it has a pocket, it has a pocket that you can fit a water bottle in. Um, it's really good for traveling actually. Um, yeah, they looked they looked really interesting. Uh, all the products on that on that site, um, uh, you yeah. know, there's sort of um, a really interesting graphic they have where you sort of look at the surface of the jacket, and then you can slide across and see where all the hidden pockets are, um, and uh, you know, with images of the things that you can keep in there, and it just yeah, really uh, cool. Um, uh, on the subject of maybe something not quite so cool but also interesting, <laughs> um, uh, you've uh, written something about what you call the boring software manifesto, uh, which I found really interesting. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So this is something, this is something I actually came up with several years ago, uh, when writing manifestos was all the rage. And, um, uh, and I actually re-upped it on my blog relatively recently cause I, I saw a reference to it and, and I'm, I'm probably gonna get the detail of it wrong actually, cause it's not in front of me as I, as I look at this. But, um, the idea is that, there's a certain kind of software team and software developer and project manager that that um, really um, starts to think of churn and activity as a good in and of itself. Um, and in fact, like a lot of times, really functional teams, um, things get stopped before they become emergencies. Um, and and so like this is against working against like hero marches, you know, death, software death marches and, and hero, uh, people saving the day by heroically working 50, 60, 70, 80 hours a week. Like this is uh, boring software. We test our things beforehand so that we, you know, we get requirements beforehand. We, we, uh, test our tools. We commit to sustainable, sustainable pace. We don't, uh, overcommit. Um, and so, yeah, I wrote it up as the boring, as the boring software manifesto, uh, structurally in the style of the agile, the far superior and more useful agile software manifesto. Um, yeah, it's a really yeah. interesting topic to me. I mean, you know, software is eating the world. Um, and so how software is built is actually a really important issue, um, for, uh, humanity. Um, and, uh, you know, after things like the, um, uh, well, I mean, a famous example in the United States that I've brought up on this podcast a couple of times is the um, Obamacare website fiasco uh, from some time ago. And we've, I mean, I'm up in Canada. We've had a number of um, scandals around this kind of thing where hundreds of millions or even more are spent on software development for something that just fails. And um, boring would be a much preferable reality yeah. to yeah. catastrophe. Uh I actually, at my own podcast, uh, which is called Tech Done Right, uh, I'm actually going to be interviewing uh, somebody who was v involved with the healthcare.gov Obamacare tech rollout at a very high level, the rescue effort, um, uh, because it's still kind of a very interesting story, um, not just how the original rollout happened, but how they actually managed to more or less write it 
relatively quickly, um, given how bad it seemed to be in, in the initial rollout. So um, that's going to be kind of interesting. It'll be up in a, in a couple of weeks. I haven't actually had that conversation yet, but um, yeah. Yeah, definitely uh, share, a, share a link with me and I'll put it in the yeah. notes for the podcast. Yeah. Um, you know, software, like, and, and of course, healthcare.gov, you're dealing with scale and, uh, and integration issues that go way beyond what most software projects have to deal with. But uh, I think that, you know, software is challenging and it is often challenging in surprising ways, even when you've been doing it for a while. And it's important to have a team that, uh, um, that has enough of a process and has built, you know, can build up, build up enough trust, um, that when things go wrong, because things will always go wrong, uh, that you can all work together, uh, to try and fix it. And, you know, I think that, that when you start getting into these super large projects, you know, uh, healthcare.gov was the coordination of multiple different consulting shops, each of which working on one part of it under one kind of specification. You know, when you start getting to even scale of once it's impossible to fit all the team in the same room at the same time, like that, that sort of process gets very, very challenging to scale up. Just the, the number of communication paths, the, the amount of state, you know, um, uh, that has to get communicated, the amount of things I talk about, um, process process being the, the thing that you need to do to, um, the thing that you need to do to communicate state so that everybody has a common idea of what's going on. So there's all kinds of things on a small project. You know, you might have a, a short 15 minute meeting every day for the six people on the project and that's enough to coordinate state. Um, but if you have like 20 people, that's not going to be enough. You know, you need more, you need more, uh, more effort placed in to make just, just not even moving things forward, just making sure everybody knows what's going on. Um, becomes increasingly complicated the larger the project gets. And it becomes exponentially complicated. Yeah, I believe the distinction that you make is between, I mean, you've got a number of distinctions, but one is between um, project and process. Um, and project is the sort of tasks you do to accomplish your goal. And process is the communication that happens around it. Is that? Yeah, right. Yes. I, you know, process is one of those words that gets thrown around a ton without a hard definition. And that makes it hard to, makes it challenging to really, think about how can I improve my process? Like what, what am I doing here that's efficient and effective? And I think that like one of the things I do in the trust driven development book is to try to put enough of a definition around it that we can start to think a little bit more critically about what kind of process is valuable. So yeah, I define processes, the things you do in a project uh, that aren't helping you get towards the goal, but are instead helping everybody understand what the status of the project is. And that is a wide, wide range of activities that could include commenting code. It can include, um, it can include a task tracker. It can include meetings. It can include a, a chat room. Like it, it's, it's a, a wide, wide range of things, but then you can start thinking about like, is this good process? Like, is this time that's actually being spent improving people's understanding of what's going on? Um, I once worked on a pro actually, I once worked on a project where um, basically every – at the end of every sort of – what do they call them? At the end of every cycle of the project, we had to go off – they expected one of our deliverables to be uh, UML, which is a, a language for defining um, software structure. They expected us to have UML diagrams 
of the structure of the code and all of the interaction paths. And in an ideal world, you develop those things work. You develop, you're supposed to develop those things first, but you never actually do because you don't know enough at the beginning. So we would, you know, we would, our software development process would come to a complete halt as somebody would go off and build these diagrams, which nobody ever looked at. And it's like, is that really, is that a process? Like that's process. So we're not building stuff, but nobody's really using it. So it's not really telling anybody anything that they don't already know. And it's probably not a really good use of our time. Yeah, you've got a pretty interesting way of put, of describing part of this issue, which is um, uh, something along the lines of um, you'll never know less about a project than you will at the beginning of the project. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as a, right, moment, but, as a moment for planning. It's- right, but there's a ton of pressure at the beginning of a project to, to feel like you know where the end of the project's going to be. And, and most of the time you just don't know enough. And unfortunately, like that's not a super satisfying answer. Like we are a consulting company here. Um, you know, we start working with a new client and they want to, they have a reasonable expectation that we're going to be able to tell them how much their project's going to cost up front, which is completely like, if you think about it in terms of business transaction, like that is a perfectly reasonable thing to want. It's just a very, very hard thing to deliver. Um, cause you don't know, you don't know. You know, you don't know the state of their existing data. Do they do they have do they have the data in place to put in? Like, are are we going to have some sort of weird translation? Like, are they going to decide that that once they see the application, it's not actually what they need? Um, you know, are they going to want a lot of changes? Um, you know, it, 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 are there all, are there requirements that are hidden here that you know it just says like. Uh, allow the user to log in, but it doesn't tell us that there's an existing single sign-on system that they need to know about or that, you know, they need to have administrative users with special privileges. You know, there's all kinds of things at the beginning of a project that you don't know. And one of the strengths of uh, extreme programming and agile as concepts is that they kind of roll with that. The expectation is that you don't know. So they try to put lightweight processes in, in place so that you can course correct over the over the course of your um, over the course of your project, the the analogy is driving. Like you don't when you're driving, you don't take your hands off the wheel and just try to steer once a block. Like your hands are always on the wheel, and you try to make small motions all the time. Um, and that's great, and I think it works really really well in a product company environment um, where you have an ongoing project. Um, and it works very well in a consulting environment too. It just has this extra challenge of most of the time customers want you to be able to say upfront how much you're going to ask them to pay you. Um, and whereas the process is almost deliberately designed, you know, it's very, very hard to know that with certainty. And how do you guys uh, do process? Um, do you use Slack? I mean, I can see, I can see behind you um, uh, that you've got um, whiteboards with sticky notes on them. Uh, yeah, this, <laughs> what's behind us? Yeah, so the sticky notes. Actually, one of the sticky notes there is actually one of the things we do for um, for career development, which is a separate issue entirely. Actually, um, I wanted to ask you about that in just a second, but um, yeah, yeah, I am curious about what your uh, so we do um, we do a couple of different things. Uh, depends a little bit on the project. Um, we use uh, Pivotal Tracker a lot for for task tracking. Uh, which is a, a fairly opinionated piece of agile software that that uh, integrates really well with the idea that you have broken up your task into small 
stories and that you can give those stories um, estimates that are in a point system, one point, two point, rather than in time. Uh, and then you, you determine how many points you can get done in a given couple weeks based on how many points you've gotten done in the previous couple weeks. Uh, and it all works. It can work very, very elegantly um, <laughs> in an ideal project, which is, you know, like a lot of ideal things doesn't always exist in practice. Um, and we use for uh, interpersonal communication. We use Slack a lot. Um, we have regular team meetings. Um, most of our projects have, you know, weekly or biweekly uh, stand uh, iteration planning meetings where we talk about what was done in the last week or so and what we're going to do in the next week or so. Um, one thing we do that's really important is we have retrospective meetings uh, every week or two. Uh, and in that case, that's everybody on the team um, just making a list of things that are going well, things that aren't going well. Uh, and then you talk about some of the things that aren't going well and try to come up with something actionable that will make them a little bit better over the next couple of weeks. Um, that's a really, really effective. If there's just one thing that I could hit, your software team could adapt adopt tomorrow that will improve the way your software team works over time. It's that like every couple of weeks, just get down, just get in a room, figure out something that's not working very well and try and figure out one thing that you can do to make it work a little bit better. Um, and over time that gives you a lot of growth. Speaking of career development, I guess I have kind of a meta career development question. Um, you have a talk on YouTube, um, that you gave at a conference a little while ago <laughs> where you talk about your own transition um, to an HR style role. Um, yeah. And then, and then, and then out of an HR style role. Oh yeah. I, I, I didn't, I didn't, to be I didn't, clear, I didn't to be that. clear, that's the, the point of the talk is the transition into and the somewhat more interesting transition out of. Right. Uh, um, and, uh, yeah, I was wondering if you could talk, I mean, that's an experience that, um, uh, quite a few of our listeners sort of face, um, as either something, something they are going through or, or might go through someday is the transition from being a developer and, and maybe perhaps not permanently, but for some period of time into another type of role. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what that experience was like. Uh, sure. For, so for about a year, um, I transitioned to being a, I never stopped being a developer. So I was a part-time developer for a while, um, and, and wound up being part-time, uh, the, the title here is director of talent. Um, which put me in, in charge of most of the uh, pretty much everything HR related except for benefits. Uh, we already had somebody handling benefits, and that's a very specialized um, field. So then in, in practice, that involved um, our interview process, um, spearheading diversity and inclusion efforts within the company, um, handling, uh, trying to create a um, issue resolution process. Um, talking about issues involving hiring, um, company policy in the sense of like, what's the vacation policy going to be like? Um, should we change the maternity policy? Um, and that kind of stuff. And, you know, there are a lot of it. There's certainly a lot of it that I have opinion. I certainly have like a lot of opinions on how companies should hire and how interviews should go. Um, uh, and in the end, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. I wanted to ask you that actually specifically, um, your opinion about interviews. How do you think they should be conducted? Um, technical interviews. So interviewing is inherently impossible, right? You, you, that's the problem. Like you're trying, you have a, a, a very small amount of time uh, during which you're trying to figure out whether somebody's going to fit in to your company over a like extended period of time. And 
you have a bunch of constraints on it. Like you can't ask for too much of the person's time. It's not respectful of them. Um, it limits the amount of, it limits your applicant pool. Um, because if you're limiting it to people who can come in for a week or even come in for two or three days, like you're, you're, you're excluding people who you might otherwise be interested in. Um, so it becomes a real challenge. And one of the things that we tried to do, um, so there are a couple things that we have tried to do to mitigate that a little bit. Um, one is to be really transparent uh, about uh, what we are bringing somebody in to do. Uh, when we ask you to do a coding exercise, which we ask for our um, technical, we ask we have a, a relatively short take-home exercise, which has its own problems, but we haven't thought of anything that we like better yet. Um, but we try to be really transparent. This is how much time we expect this to take. Uh, if this is a problem, let us know. We'll work something out. Um, this is what we're looking for. This is what you're going to be evaluated on. Uh, if it goes well, we're going to ask you to do this. Uh, and when people come in for our interview day, we try to be very upfront about like you're going to meet your who you're going to meet with, what they're going to be talking to you about, um, what kinds of things we're, we're we're trying to get out of it, and we get and we look for feedback too. We ask people like, how was the day for you? Even before before we make a, a decision on them like kind of the last thing like and you guys you know, will actually give feedback afterwards as well right it's true yeah we did depends on the exact situation um I, I really like to do this for people who are in their first job hunt um and might not have a really good sense of because it's very hard to get your first junior developer job especially if you're trying to figure out how, what interviews how interviews go all, uh, you know, all on your own so we do like to do like you know, you came in and like you presented your, your, we saw this, this, and this in your pairing session. And that is something that we indicated, let us indicate that, that, um, you're not the right fit for us at this point. Like your, your, your skills aren't what we expected. Uh, or we had this concern. We, we try to like, obviously you don't want to, you don't want to be obnoxious to the person. Like, um, but we should try to give people something constructive if we can, um, uh, that they can that, to say like this is how you're come this is this is how you were presenting yourself um, this is something we saw that you might want to work on or this is something we were looking for that other companies this is something we were looking for that other companies might not be like here's a place that might be more interested in in this particular set of skills that you have um, it's a hard it's a hard problem because it's inherently very fraught on both sides and there's no way to know in advance like <laughs> what the what the right way to respond to somebody is um, but we try. You know, we we try. It's a really interesting issue. Um, the um, and I wanted to know your ask ask you your opinion about nervousness in interviews because um, mm. an interview is a very artificial situation, um, and one that um, you know, they if you hire them, they might not encounter again. Um, right. At, yeah. At your company, and I remember once interviewing someone for a job in finance who had um, recently completed a graduate degree in maths from Cambridge, um, and just completely flubbed basic arithmetic um and yes yeah, I, so, I mean i you know i was partly i mean i was it was interviewing for a high pressure job so the nervousness kind of mattered to some extent in that area but at the same time it was like well this person will never be in an interview again um if we hire them or not like this. so it's that's very challenging because it's hard to sometimes even tell what's nervousness and what's not um we try not to put somebody in too artificial a situation so we don't make people like code on whiteboards um, which is a common interviewing technique where you make them write a small, solve a small programming problem by writing their code out longhand on a whiteboard, which is something that you never actually do. 
um, and it's ridiculously artificial and, and I probably couldn't pass it. And I've been doing this for, you know, 25 years. Um, not quite. Yeah, maybe. Um, uh, and, and so, and it's also, it's just like the tone, like we, we, we try to be super welcoming. Um, we try to make it feel like the person being interviewed is the most important person in the office, uh, when they come in and, and eventually we kind of hope, we hopefully kind of break through the nervousness and, and we try to take that into account in our decision process too. Like this person seemed kind of nervous and, and, um, we try not to hold that against people. Um, on moving on to your book, um, which is, uh, about trust. Um, you have this line where you say, um, we are continually telling people that they need to give us money to solve complicated problems that they cannot fully see. Yeah. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, about that, that problem, which I think is, um, it's not entirely unique to software development, but the idea that you're doing work yeah. that see people can't see is just fascinating. Right. It's actually not unique to software development at all. And I think that's a, an important insight. Uh, if you're a software developer and you're dealing with non-software developers, because almost all of us have been in that situation on the other side, we go to auto mechanics or we go to doctors or we go to lawyers or accountants and all in all of that case, we're going to somebody who has expertise in a problem. And like I, I specifically analogize uh, an auto mechanic at the beginning of the book, like the auto mechanic comes out and says, yeah, the problems with your brake lining here, look at this. <laughs> Doesn't that look bad? That's going to be $5,000. And like, I don't know, maybe he, it might not even be my brake lining. I don't know. You know, I, I don't know enough to be able to tell. And I have to trust this person. Uh, or, you know, the doctor says, uh, you know, I think you should take this medicine. Or a lawyer says, you know, your will needs to be filled out this way. Uh, and, 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 and this, this, and this. I don't have that expertise. I can't have all of this expertise. You know, I'm going to somebody because they're offering me expertise, but then I necessity of necessity need to trust them. And I think that, that having empathy for being on the receiving end of that experience, if you're a software developer can really help you when you are on the delivering end of that. And we talk a little bit about the kinds of things in that situation, um, that can build trust. And one of them is, um, one of them is making sure you you have an incentive structure in place that incentivizes like long term relationships. Uh, basically, repeating, you know, the easiest way to build trust is to say that you're going to do something and then do it. So setting up a structure where you have that ability to do that um, helps a lot. Um, you know, having people that having satisfied customers that you can say uh, like, look, uh, we trusted them and it worked for us. Um, that's, that's a great thing too. You know, there are, there are things that you can do in that situation to, uh, make that interaction more friendly friendly may not be the right word, but to make it to, to, to try to, to increase the level of trust, um, that you're going to need. Cause at some point in any software project, you're going to have to say, like, I know we said this was only going to take a couple of days, but it's just not, or, you know, we, there's a bug here and we're sorry. Like, that's just part of the process. Like sometimes this just happens. Um, and it's very hard to say, like the time to say like bugs are part of the process is not when you've delivered your first bug, <laughs> the major bug, the time gonna, to say, yeah, yeah. yeah the time gonna, to say, go ahead. Sorry. I was going to ask. Yeah. When is the right time to say that? It's the second or third thing you say, okay. like it's, it's like, 
you know, it, it's really helpful to sit down at the beginning of a project and say like, this is what this, this is what's going to happen. Like you're going to, you're going to present us with some requirements. We're going to try to turn them into something that we can operationalize that we can turn into software. So we're going to ask you a lot of questions and we're going to make a best faith estimate about how long it's going to take, but we don't know yet because we haven't built it. And sometimes we're going to make mistakes. And sometimes that mistake is going to be because you have a requirement that we didn't know about. And so it's going to go wrong. And sometimes that mistake is just going to be a mistake. Like we're just going to like things are going to happen and hopefully we will catch them. And the more that we work together, the sooner we can catch them. Uh, but inherently the soft, we are, we are flawed people. <laughs> you know, we're, we're very good at what we do, but we're not perfect and things are going to happen. And then, you know, and, and then the deal is like when things happen, like you deal with it again to engender trust. Like you can build a lot of trust when things go wrong. If you are willing to come out there and go, yep, we screwed up and here's what we're going to do to fix it. Um, if you try to hide, this is, this is, if you learn nothing from sitcoms, it's that the initial, the initial problem doesn't get you in trouble. It's the repeated attempts to go over the top to try to cover up the initial problem is what gets you in trouble. You make an interesting observation, I think is related to this, that the broken windows theory applies to um, software projects. Yeah. So one thing that is true about doing software for people who are not software developers is that if you're not a software developer, you have a much different sense of what software is. And you tend to think that software is the interface. Um, so you tend to think of things that are just like this is red instead of blue or this is over here instead of over here as being sometimes more complicated and than they are and the underlying logic that drives that is being less complicated than it is. And one of the things that you can do in kind of a related way, one of the things that you can do really quickly to build trust is like fix problems right away. Um, especially early in a project, like they're going to, the customer is going to come up the first time they test stuff. They're going to have the first time they look at it, they're going to have a list of things. Um, you know, I wanted this over there. Or when I click here, it doesn't do what I expect. Um, and if you can get a lot of that stuff done, like really fast and often you can, because a lot of those things are, are small a lot of the time, but they're the kind of small things that are really interfering with the, the client's ability to see the application for what it is. Uh, because their view of it is literally just what we present. And if it's not exactly, it's hard for, it's hard for somebody to see like the underlying logic if they are caught up in the surface, not being correct. Um, and I think that applies to like, I, 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 I'm not, it's not a value judgment here. Like the, 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 it's not that, that the software developers have a grand insight in general. Um, it's just that the software, the, the, the software needs to be built for the customer and, what the customer sees is an important part of their experience. Um, and if you can make that, like, keep working for them, um, you know, especially for a non-technical customer, like, if you if, – if, there's nothing more satisfying if you're, like, a customer in this case that you, like, say this thing isn't quite working and then the next time you go to, to, the, to test it, it's fixed. <laughs> like, that is a very uh, – that, that is a very strong step towards building, like – a little bit of trust. Yeah. And I imagine the, um, the beginning of the relationship is probably the most crucial time for building trust. Um, I've got an old mm -hmm. observation that if you get a new job, show up half an hour early for the first six months and you'll be early guy the whole time. 
yes. if you stop doing it. Yeah. Um, and if you um, can fix a client's problems right away at the beginning of a project, then they will trust you further on that if something is still broken, it's not because you're negligent. It's just because something happened. Right. Eventually, like you're eventually when you say this is hard, this is harder than I thought it was going to be. Like if you have prefaced that with like, uh, like, again, the time to say that for the first time is not when you've already something's already late. Like the time to say that is before. Uh, right. That's a really good piece of advice. Um, I've run into issues related to that in the past. Um, uh, Another thing you talk about in your book is dealing with hostile environments. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. I mean, this could be an environment where you have lost trust with the client or maybe they're under a deadline. They, they've, they've suddenly <laughs> dropped it. I mean, dropped a deadline on you that you can't meet and they didn't know in advance that couldn't be met. Things like that. Yeah. A client environment or a programming environment can be challenging in a number of different ways. Like you said, it can be a situation where the, you have either lost trust with the client or, the client, for whatever reason, is reluctant to give you the trust, or the client has impossible demands placed on them and they're passing them along to you, which is also a thing that happens. And Or the client wants to do something that you frankly think is a bad idea or is potentially a user-hostile idea or, in some cases, potentially illegal. Um, if you're dealing with software and money, it's not that hard to wander into stuff that is actually illegal uh, without even kind of realizing it. Um, or personal data. Yeah, or personal data. If you're, there are all kinds of things that you can do that are either actually illegal or are like violations of um, like PCI compliance is not the law, but it's a it's a standard. Um, so you know you you have or you get asked or you have unreasonable uh, expectations for uh, deadlines or things like that, and it, it is very very hard in that situation. Uh, so you, you need to. Every every challenging environment like that is challenging in its own way, and it's hard to come up with a one-size-fits-all. But I do believe that you can make some progress if you if you need to, if you're willing to like make slow and steady progress. That like being the change that you want to see is sort of a cliched kind of concept, but that can be um, that can be powerful. It's slow. Um, but if you just uh, – and it doesn't work everywhere because some places will just smash that. Um, but it, it's worth trying, like to try to model for other people the behavior. You know, you know a culture is made up of the people in it. Um, and as you – if you if you come into a culture that, that expects things to do certain ways, especially if there aren't that many people in it, um, if you try to do something a different way, suddenly you're like – you know, you're a six-person team. You're 18 percent of the culture trying to – trying to do something new, trying to do pair programming or trying to do testing. You know, you convince somebody else and suddenly it's a third of the team. Like, you know, um, and, and so you have this kind of gradual process, um, which is not like necessarily fun, um, but you can make it better. Um, but, you know, every environment in that respect is, is, is a little bit different. Yeah. Speaking of, um, uh, changing environments, um, you've, uh, you write a lot, um, and you've, uh, published quite a bit, um, uh, online and, and in books as well. Um, and, uh, you've, you've had a couple of books published by a conventional publisher, the Craig Braddock programmers who are, mm -hmm. um, and you've now decided to do, uh, a project on LeanPub. And I was wondering, um, why you decided to try, 
do, do this book on LeanPod? So I've done self-publishing before, and I've actually self-published this book in other ways before a little bit. Um, so I actually – so I, I started self-publishing um, uh, several years ago. Before, Rails Test Prescriptions actually was originally self-published before it went to Pragmatic. Oh, I didn't know. And, and I had had some experiences with conventional publishers. I'd worked with um, a couple of other conventional publishers, and, and one of those experiences was not great. And I kind of decided that I was done with, with that. Um, and I, I had some reasons to believe that the Rails test prescriptions was a little bit too niche to even for technical publishers. Uh, I turned out to be wrong in that case, but I believed it at the time. So this was like 2009, and I started self-publishing it as a PDF. And to tell you, like this is pre-tablet, so I was shipping it as a PDF, and I was actually um, designing it as a landscape PDF so that you could read it better on a laptop. Um, <laughs> Uh, and eventually someone talked me into submitting it to Pragmatic when it was mostly done, uh, about half done, and Pragmatic decided that they were willing to buy it. And so I stopped self-publishing it um, and we transitioned to we, we transitioned to a somewhat more – somewhat longer version of the same book that Pragmatic um, published. Um, a little bit after that, I wound up in a situation where I had this – I had for other reasons – a partially finished JavaScript manuscript that didn't manuscript that didn't have a publisher that I self-published myself for a while um, using my own uh, tool chain and using uh, a third-party shopping cart, um, and that worked pretty well. Um, and I and, and but this time around, or as I decided to redo this to to reissue this book in LeanPub, um, I had had my own process for um, uh, generating all the ebook stuff a few years ago. Um, but I hadn't really looked at it in a while and was not really looking forward to updating it. And looking at LeanPub's uh, tool chain, it occurred to me that LeanPub uh, had spent the intervening, that intervening time putting a lot of effort into improving their tool chain. It was a lot farther along than the last time I had uh, evaluated it in terms of like what the, what the end products looked like and what kind of options you had in, in it didn't have, there was some option that I wanted that, that wasn't available the last time I tried to self-publish, and it was now. And uh, it occurred to me, like, hmm. you know, they, they, they've, they've, this tool chain's actually put in a lot of people uh, have sort of, uh, uh, you know, uh, worked on this tool chain, worked worked with this tool chain, and and I bet it's probably a little bit further along than the one I had that nobody's touched for four years. Um, and and it turned out, yeah, it turned out to actually it turned out to actually be true. So it, it led me to uh, to really quickly be able to transition what I what I had uh, to LeanPub uh, and put it out there. Yeah, well, um, one of the ways um, we've developed LeanPub over time is through uh, interviews with authors um, and asking them um, about their issues. And I was wondering if there was one mm-hmm. magical feature we could build for you. Um, something missing perhaps in your experience that we don't have. You know, I, I suspect that when I start to do something, if I start to do something on LeanPub that has a lot more code in it, then I'm probably going to have some, uh, some kind of like my, uh, one of my tool chains has a preprocessor that drops, that, that drops code from my source code in. I don't actually expect LeanPub to have that feature. Um, but, but there, there, I suspect that there are some sort of that, that, that kind of thing. Uh, is where I would start to to bang up against the corners of what uh, 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 LeanPub winds up doing. One thing you do uh, in your books is you include an email address um, asking for 
feedback and um, comments about Errata. In fact, you even have Errata at NoelRappin.com. Yes. Um, and um, I was wondering, is that is that something that you've uh, had success with with readers? Do they do they email you with comments? Um, sometimes. Um, I think that it probably the way that I am presenting it in the book right now is not really getting it very much. Um, it, it seems to be kind of sensitive to when you hit people up for comments. Uh, you, you sort of need to hit them up when they uh, when they're in a when they're in a mood to to uh, respond, and possibly when they're reading something on a tablet is not necessarily the time. Um, it seems like that is something that that you might have more success with in like a follow up email, like, "Hey, you bought this a week ago. Um, you know, do you have any comments about it?" Yeah. Um, well, I'm afraid our time is just about up, but I wanted to thank you uh, very much for being on the well, Pub podcast and for taking thank the time you. to talk to all of us about this. It was really yeah, interesting. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me on.